In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, we read where the angel said to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And then our scripture that we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. Now those first words that I read to us from Luke chapter 2, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Those are words that we associate with Christmas as we celebrate those beginning moments in the life of the Lord. And while it might seem out of place to hear them now when we're considering these final moments of his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, it's good for us to be reminded that those first words bespoke the whole reason and purpose for Jesus being among us. Those words again, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Too often, as we read the words of these scriptures, our eyes see them, but we rush right on through them, catching their general meaning, but failing to grasp all that God has for us in them. These words here in Luke 2 are of that kind. We get all caught up in the angel making this announcement about the baby Jesus being born. And we miss out on the all-important ending words in this verse. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Words that are filled with meaning and purpose. Plainly and simply, this baby that the angel was speaking about was to be a Savior. A Savior. That's what his name Jesus signified. And that's what the angel had said to Joseph in his dream. He said in Matthew 1, verse 20, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus would bring salvation to his people. And he'd accomplish that salvation by being the Christ, the anointed one of God who would die, and by dying pay the penalty for all our sins. And praise be to God, his special mission of salvation was not limited to only a few, especially perhaps say to the nation and people of Israel. His salvation was sufficient. His Death, his burial, his resurrection, the blood that he shared was sufficient to wipe away the sins of the whole world. And you and I are very thankful for that today because that extends on to us then. You and I are able to be saved because of what he did there 2,000 years ago. We're told in 1 John 2 that his death, his burial, his resurrection provided the propitiation, another word that our minds can read but then pass right on by without wondering even what it means. But what it means is it is the full and final and perfect payment necessary to satisfy all the debts of our sin. Those words in First John. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for those of the whole world. Why is that important? 
It's because most of this world tries to obtain salvation by having good behavior. That is not, their behavior is not that perfect payment, that propitiation. God is the one who gets to decide what is the perfect payment for the debt of our sins. And it's not your and my good behavior. Yes, we're supposed to have good behavior, but that's not what gets us saved. It is this propitiation, this shedding of blood by the Lord Jesus to pay our debts. There's no other religion among the peoples of this earth that accepts this as truth or even perceives that it's even needful. Why is that so? It's because it is only in Christianity that we find that we have need of a Savior. That our sins, though we consider many of them to be small and inconsequential. How often have you heard, what is the big deal? Or some other expression. We think our sins to be small and inconsequential. But listen, they are indeed more heinous, more odious, more vile than we could ever hope to atone for. We need a Savior. Someone outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, to save us. And as a Christian, I am especially thankful for this annual celebration of Easter because it brings back to the forefront of our minds exactly what it took for our sins to be atoned for and for us to have and to enjoy eternal life. And may I say that even if this is only one of two or three times that people attend church. This is, this is the opportunity for us to grasp this gospel and to receive it. Folks, the message of the gospel is clear and plain. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and many other scriptures like them leave no room, no room at all, no question at all. Our salvation is by grace through faith. It is a gift freely given through the shed blood of Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection. Nothing more to be added, and no other provision is possible. And again, thankfully, that same provision is available to you and me today. Nothing has changed since that first moment of Christ's death there on the cross, His burial, and His resurrection. His provision is just as effectual for you and me today as it was 2,000 years ago. Now, may I just repeat that again? That this gospel, this gospel that you're hearing today, is still as sure and as powerful as it was on that first resurrection day. Why is that so? It is because the gospel always has a special miraculous power that resides within it. Let me ask you something. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That as we read these scriptures, that there is special power that resides within these words, that the Holy Spirit wrote these words and He lives within these words, and He speaks forth from these words, and the Holy Spirit in us receives these words. There is a power within them. A power beyond you and, and me and, and our imaginations. It's the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this gospel never loses its power. Its words, its words can draw men and women's souls to Christ and then save them. Listen to these words. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
May I ask you again? Jesus, when He was talking to Martha about eternal life, He asked her, did she believe what He was saying? And I ask you, do you believe this Gospel? Do you believe that this is really real? For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, these words tell us, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's the truth. It can never vary. It can never change can never change. May I share a concern that I have, even a complaint perhaps, towards many of us who preach this gospel. We read and we preach these simple words, but then we too often reach on out and try to explain them by adding to them or taking away from them some of their simple meaning. May I say that should never be. That should never be. These words are fully sufficient in themselves and they are simple and they are powerful. For I'm not ashamed of this gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Now yes, salvation of our soul truly is a very complicated matter. But for you and me, for you and me who believe and receive it, it is so very, very simple and and such an easy transaction. It was not easy for Christ. And I don't want to give that impression to you. It was not easy for Him. Very difficult. He had to die. He had to suffer and die that awful death. And He had to carry our sins for us. But all you and I have to do, all you and I have to do is receive Christ into our soul. And we're saved. That's all that it takes. It's that quick and that simple. It's as Paul and Silas said to that jailer. They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. No doubts. No questions. It is so very, very easy for you and me to be saved. And that's the simple gospel that I want to give to you and me today. And I want you and me to pass it on. We need to pass this grace along to others. Anyone who will listen. I know that you've heard these words over and over again, but as your pastor, I need to keep saying them over and over again. For it is by grace, this gospel tells us, for it is by grace, that's that free gift from God, not something you and I earn by our behavior. It is a free gift from God. By grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. While all those other religions of the earth struggle with all of their personal efforts to gain salvation by doing a lifetime of good works and good behavior. It's this gospel. It is this gospel and this gospel alone that really saves. Nothing else. Salvation is a free gift from God. Nothing added. No other provision possible. But also, as we've said so many times from this pulpit, salvation is only the beginning only the beginning of our eternal life. Salvation is where those good works that all those other people are trying to do to gain salvation, salvation is where the good works are to begin. You and I cannot do good works before we're saved. We might think they're good, but they're not really. But now that we're saved, now that we have taken part in this blessed resurrection, then we can do truly good works. By the way, those words are found in Ephesians 2. Let me read those for you. Now, I just read to you Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but verse 10 talks about good works. Listen. For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then the very next verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You and I are to do good works. But those good works will begin the moment that we're saved. This is the day, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus was resurrected from his death. This is the day that he triumphed over all of that power of sin and Satan and death and that he came back to life, a whole new life. And listen, his resurrection provides you and me with the same benefits that took place in his resurrection. Philippians chapter 3 says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What is the power of his resurrection? It is this, that he was freed from the power of the sins that he had just taken on himself from us. Do you realize what he did when he hung there on the cross? He took all of our sins upon himself. Scriptures say that he actually became those sins. Here is a completely pure and holy God who suddenly took on all of the sins of everyone of the whole world. And then what was the power of his resurrection? It was that he was freed from the power of that. All of that was wiped away. He paid the penalty through his death and he wiped away all of that. And so also is the same for us. We have been freed from that same power of those same sins. You and I might not quite understand that. I confess that I don't. But I know that it's true. And by faith I know that sin no longer controls me. Temptation no longer controls me. Temptation, yes, will come. It'll come all through this day and every day. But it does not control me. It does not control you if you have Christ as your Savior. You no longer have to submit to it. Through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit who came to live within us the moment that we were saved, we now have the means within us, His Holy Spirit, to turn away from every form of sin and no longer yield to its temptation. We can no longer say, I couldn't help myself. That's not true. By the power of the Holy Spirit in you and me, we now can turn away from sin. In Romans chapter 6, God clearly tells us those truths. That just as Christ rose from the dead, completely free from the power and the control of those sins that He had taken from us onto Himself, as you and I receive salvation, we are freed from the power and the control of sin. And you and I should no longer, those are the words of Romans chapter 6, we should no longer walk in its ways. You and I should no longer walk in the ways of sin. And those words are not intended to just provide us with some theological knowledge. Those are words that you and I are to apply in all the matters of our daily life. As I was thinking through this message, I recalled a a conversation that I had with my son recently about what do we do with some of those daily sins? Like impatience. Are you impatient? Yes, you are. I can answer that for you. Impatience is one of those daily sins that hang on to us. And, and impatience then can lead on to, into other sins. Anger. That's what it's done with me. My impatience has led me into anger and frustration and unkindness. It's one of those sinful behaviors that seems to be able to cling to our back as we enter into the freedom of salvation. 
And yes, our salvation did completely free us from all the bondage of sin. But the sin of impatience and other sins like them, lifestyle type sins, they seem to be able to hitch a ride on our shoulders as we move into this new condition of salvation. That's why when we studied in the book of Ephesians, we studied about where God commanded us, put off this old man, this old self, and put on the new. It's something you and I have to do. We have to deal with this, with these lifestyle sins, such as the one we're talking about here with impatience. Some, some sins have long claws, and they're able to dig deeply into our souls and hang on hang on through the strongest of efforts that we might make to get rid of them. And that was a discussion that I had with my son. It's a question that I've pondered many times over the years. Is it a good thing to practice behaviors such as patience? Now, it really does seem logical. And we are taught by the wisdom of the wise in our society that yes, we should. We should practice Patience. But listen, have you noticed that it doesn't work? It's like those other human efforts that we have misguidedly put them into a a plan called behavior modification or anger management. Have you noticed they don't work? They work for a while while you're taking those classes, but they really do not work for any extended period of time. As believers... You and I as believers, those who have the presence of God's Spirit abiding within us, the real question is, listen, the real question for us is, is it a good thing to practice any of or all of the fruits of the Spirit? Because patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's one of those. Now when we place our question in that context, should we practice the fruits of the Spirit, a far deeper wisdom has to be sought. So then the question then for us, are we to intentionally practice the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Are we to practice those? Are those behaviors that we practice? Most Christian teachers will quickly say, yes, yes, we should and we must practice those fruits of the Spirit. But listen, folks, listen. I need to warn us to be very careful that such teachings and such practices may lead us in the wrong direction. We may return to the problems that most of us have had before we were saved. That of trying through those personal efforts to deal with the dilemmas of sin. Impatience is a sin. And you and I have no ability to deal with sin. Not with our own efforts. It's not possible. Else the death of Christ would be meaningless. Such human effort did not work before you and I were saved, and it will not work after we're saved. Yes, we are to give personal effort, but we're to do it carefully. We're told clearly that we are to be holy. It says in 1 Peter 1, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance before you're saved, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. These words present to you and me a course of behavior that really, to some degree, sounds like you and I need to put in a lot of personal effort. 
And there are a lot of other scriptures that indicate the same. But listen, as you and I draw nearer to the Spirit of Christ, and, and as you and I grow in Him, we find that any actual, listen, any actual steps forward in faith and in obedience and in holiness and sanctification comes first through a deeper infilling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yes, there is a unique combination of our own involvement between uh, us and the Holy Spirit being carefully applied, but never simply coming through our efforts. Now, why would that be so? And listen carefully to these words. Why would that be so? It is because the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, they are not fruits of your and my own. They are not. They belong to the Holy Spirit. They are not gifts from Him. And therefore they never become ours. Not at all. Those fruits, such as the one of patience that we're talking about here, are part of the character of the Holy Spirit. And are only present, listen, are only present when and to the extent that the Holy Spirit is present within our souls. I hope you understand that. It's difficult for me to understand, but it is true. You and I can only enjoy the fruits of the Spirit, any one of them, if and to the extent that the Holy Spirit is able to come to the surface within our lives. Now, some might argue that, well, the Holy Spirit's always present within a believer. And that's absolutely true. But strangely, and I confess I don't understand the concept, But the Holy Spirit can be present in varying measures within a believer, within many believers. And that's easily to be seen when you read verses like where he tells us, be filled with the Spirit. Does that mean that we are believers, but we're not filled with the Spirit? Yes. And then he says, draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Is God not always near? Yes, He is. But somehow we limit His presence in our conduct. So then, while we might not fully understand those concepts of righteousness, we know from the experience that the presence of God's Holy Spirit is in varying degrees within us. I know that's so in my own life and in my behaviors. It's only as I, it's only as you draw near to God and as we're filled with the Spirit of God that those fruits of the Spirit such as patience, then can fully come forth in our behaviors. So then the answer to the question, should we practice the fruits of the Spirit? May I say it is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But listen, it is not the best thing. It is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. If we are ever to experience real patience in our daily circumstances of life, the very best thing for us to do is to draw near to God and be filled with His Spirit. And then He will bring His patience with Him as He draws near to us. And it will be the kind of patience that really works. That really works. And folks, all of that is a part of the blessedness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. His resurrection wrought those blessings within our lives of power over sin, such as this one with impatience. I'll close for now. Our time is up. But may I repeat, there's power. 
there is wonder-working power available to us who believe in this gospel and who receive the precious Lord Jesus as Savior. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's pray.